welcome to Escape Roots with Condé Nast Traveler. My name is Divya Sani, Global Editorial Director of Condé Nast Traveler, and it is my pleasure to introduce you to our podcast series. Travel is all about storytelling, a story of a place, of its people, of a journey. And at Condé Nast Traveler, we've always celebrated the most transportative, evocative travel writing. With much of the world currently grounded, we've come together to take you to some of our favorite places, if only in your imagination, by listening to our most loved travel stories read aloud by the writers who penned them. We hope these short escape routes allow you to daydream of far-flung adventures, discover the world's curious corners, or recast familiar destinations in a fresh light. And that you love these travel stories as much as I do. Hello, my name is Stanley Stewart, and welcome to Condé Nast Traveler's Escape Routes. I will be reading from my piece on Vancouver Island, which featured in the November 2017 issue of Condé Nast Traveler. I hope you enjoy it. In early April 1915, the, the Princess Marquena dropped anchor at Hesquid Bay on the west coast of Vancouver Island. A supply ship for the remote communities of the area, the boat also carried passengers enjoying an early scenic cruise along one of the wildest and most beautiful stretches of coast in Canada. When the engines clattered to a, a halt, an eerie silence overtook the decks of the ship. The shores of the bay were enclosed by the colossal trees of the northwest rainforest, casting long reflections over the green water. Beyond the trees rose the mountains, visible among a tumult of crowd. So majestic, sighed a woman at that rail. The grandeur of Mother Nature, declared a man in a fedora hat. Then something unusual happened. A small canoe was lowered over the side of the steamer. Crewmen loaded it with trunks and sacks. With some difficulty, a trussed cow was winched down and lashed between the gunnels of the canoe upside down. Finally, a young couple with three small children climbed in and paddled steadily across the bay in the direction of the forested shore, while the upside-down cow flapped his legs as if waving at the bemused passengers. A small, stout woman in the bow of the canoe was to become one of Vancouver Island's most remarkable pioneers. Almost 70 years later, she would still be living in this remote place, then in her 90s. And she would bear eight children here and carve a magnificent garden out of the wilderness. Known as Cougar Annie, she was famed for having shot dozens of the big cats and possibly a couple of her more troublesome husbands. They should build a monument to Cougar Annie. They should put her on postage stamps and name settlements after her. They should erect statues. She's an icon of the shore. At Canada, wilderness is always close. If you turn up a back road or hike over the next hill, you may find yourself on the shores of a lake that has never heard a motor or in trackless woods where there have been few human footprints since native tribes 
ghosted through these trees on moccasin soles. On Vancouver Island, almost a quarter the size of England, wilderness is the central fact, the great, dark, wonderful heart of this place. With a magnetism that spans all of North America, Vancouver Island attracts dreamers, romantics, misfits, oddballs, draft dodgers, loners, free spirits, the wayward and the wandering. And here on its west coast, these escapers finally find a place big enough, strange enough, and far enough away to call home. At the southern end of the island, in the genteel streets of Victoria, you, you might be forgiven for thinking that you were in Cheltenham. But things get rugged remarkably quickly. An hour's drive from town, and you are in virgin forests riddled with rivers and waterfalls. Three hours' drive up the coast, and you reach the end of the line in, in the little town of, of Tofino. Beyond, for hundreds of miles, there are no roads at all. People come and go by boat or float plane. The single road that reaches the town of Tofino is the unofficial last leg of the Trans-Canada Highway. A west coast town of half a dozen streets with an unlikely mix of fishermen and surfers, First Nation peoples and retired hippies. This is a place so laid back its inhabitants would make Australians seem stressed. The tsunami warning on Main Street might be the town motto. Grab a beer, it says, and run like hell. In the early morning down on Chesterman Beach, a handful of wet-suited surfers were, were careening among the breakers. This coast has some of the best waves on the whole of the Pacific Ocean. The silhouettes of cedar and spruce trees of Frank Islands were swimming in silver light. They might have marked the edge of the known world. Over many years, Chesterman Beach was home to Henry Nola, a woodcarver with a workshop at the end of the beach. Here was another sort of typical island character, eccentric, warm-hearted, and often naked. He liked to work in the nude, and well into his 70s, still had the body of a young surfer. When the nearby Rikinicius Inn was being built, some of the investors expressed worries about nude Henry, who was visible from the restaurant windows. However, the owner, an old friend, always stood by him. To complain about a fit nude sculptor on Vancouver Island would be to miss the whole point of the place. In 18 years, there were only three objections to nude Henry, and none of them from women. A boat arrived to take me beyond the reach of roads. The day was blustery and the winds brought a sense of excitement and possibilities. As we rode north past Arnott, Beck and Stone Islands, the seascapes became labyrinthine, a confusion of forested inlets and deep bays of passages as convoluted as fjords. Rain swept round a headland and then a moment later the sun burst across the ocean in swathes of dazzling light. I was with the wonderful Nikki Sanchez, one of the expert guides from Clackwit Wilderness Resort. She was taking me to meet some of the flora and fauna of this coast. On Mears Island, we followed wooded paths to find monumental cedars that had been saplings 
when the Roman Empire began to come unstuck. And along the shores of, of Carter Passage, we spotted black bears, distant cousins of Winnie the Pooh, shuffling along as they settled down among boulders to lunches of kelp and clams. Near Vargas Islands, we saw an otter floating on its back, like a man sunning himself on a lilo, hands behind his head. At the mouth of Fife's Sound, we came upon a colony of sea lions, bundled together like puppies on a rocky outcrop under the charge of three enormous bulls. Sea lion life should have been idyllic, basking in the sun, dozing, shagging everyone in turn, dropping into the water for an occasional swim and a feast of fresh fish. But happiness is a question of temperament and not circumstances, and sea lions are the Afghanets of the ocean. From the boat we could hear the endless grumblings, the chorus of annoyances, the, the petty arguments. I blame the big males, who are, who are patriarchal boars, bullying, abusive, overweight, ill-tempered, and a bit lax about personal hygiene and chronically unfaithful. At Housett we docked at Hughes General Store, a pit stop for sailors and fishermen, for backwoodsmen and First Nation peoples. It stocked all of life's essentials. Three-inch nails, plumbing solder, cornflakes, baby powder, paddles, hose pipe, fan belts, maple syrup, half-inch grease nipples, rat traps, stamps, and frozen peas. If I don't have it, shrugged Hugh, the owner, his chair tipped back against the doorpost, then you don't need it. Then we went in search of whales. 20,000 grey whales migrate past Vancouver Island every year on the way from Baja, California, up to the Bering Sea. At 20,000 kilometres, it's said to be one of the world's greatest mammalian migrations. When the first grey whale surfaced, hardly more than five metres away from our boat, she was so close that I could see her eye, tiny in that huge body, and looking at us. The spray from the blowhole exhalation drifted across the boat, followed by the rich stench of rotting fish in stomach belch. She was half again as long as a bus, yet she appeared to move in elegant slow motion. Arching through the water, her hide was not so much skin as artifact, thick, crusted, scarred, barnacled, a pitted illustration of an epic ocean life. Then she died. For a moment, the great tail, four meters across, hung in the air, streaming water, before it too slid into the depths. Some people arrive in the wilderness chasing freedom, some come looking for a challenge to give meaning to their lives. Craig Murray arrived for adventure. Only the one he found wasn't the one he was looking for. A float plane arrived for me, skidding down onto Bedwell Sound. It was from the air that you begin to make sense of this place, that you understand its scale. By turning your head, it is possible to take in the vast sweep of the landscape which tips away into infinities at both horizons. We banked over the summits of Strathcona, skirted thunderheads, gathered around the Golden Hyde, then crossed Johnson Strait 
over the scattering of islands known as the Breton Archipelago. From the air, the whole coast appeared to have been dropped from the heavens to shatter in a hundred pieces. Murray came west in the 1970s, nurturing a dream of building a boat on Vancouver Island and then sailing around the world. But the beauty of the area took hold of him, and he forgot about the boat and the islands of the South Seas. In 1980, he towed a float house across the inside passage to set up a fishing lodge on remote Nemo Bay. Forty years on, it has evolved into one of the finest places to stay on this coast. Staggering from a lavish breakfast of blueberry pancakes, I set off from Nemo one morning by helicopter to visit a few of the neighbours. My pilot, Dougal McLean, was yet another West Coast romantic, a lean, weathered adventurer whose most recent outing was to ride a motorbike from Vladivostok to Scotland. But as we banked over Mackenzie Sound and sea and islands stretched beneath us, his voice crackled over the headphones, maybe just a little emotional. Most beautiful place on God's earth, he said. Up at the hamlet of Echo Bay, a population of ten, we sat down in an overgrown meadow to visit Billy Proctor. Now in his eighties, he spent a lifetime on this coast, first as a fisherman and a logger, and latterly as a powerful voice for, for conservation. But it was the results of his boyhood passion that I had come to see. Billy's museum it contains eight decades worth of beachcombing and collecting, treasures thrown up by the sea from his first arrowhead found age five to the latest oriental bottle washed ashore the previous week. I was examining the string of beads brought here by Captain Cook to trade with the native tribes when Nicky appeared. A different Nicky from my friend at Clackwit. An attractive woman in her forties she had the milky grey eyes of a wolf, observant and preternaturally calm. Wilderness was her passion. As a child, she had dreamt of being marooned on, on a desert island and having to fend for herself. As a young woman, she came to this part of the world to spend 18 months surviving with nothing but a rowboat, a knife and a feral cat for company. Sitting in the sun on Billy's porch, Overlooking Echo Bay, we chatted about roasting mice and hanging bear meat, about choosing wood to make arrows and the best kind of seaweed to flavour stews, as if it was the most natural thing in the world, which, of course, it actually was. Back in the chopper, we sailed along the shore, swinging in over the inlet of, of Kingcombe to land at the First Nation settlement of Ukonalis, where I found Joe a hereditary chief among the Kwakwakwaka people, and another woodcarver, mercifully clothed. A small figure as neatly composed as one of his carvings, he was knee-deep in cedar shavings. He showed me his work, symbolic animals and tiny human masks, delicate and exquisite. I ran away, Joe explained, speaking of the government residential schools that was still in operation for native children in his day. I ran away and, and I lived with, with my grandfather. He ran his, a hand over the smoothed wood. I was lucky they never found me. So I was able to earn the old ways from my grandparents.
up at Hesquit Bay these days, the wilderness is trying to reclaim what has been taken from it. There are a few rotting sort of totem poles among the trees, an overgrown cemetery, and evidence of an abandoned village. Thick forests still command most of the rocky shoreline. This is where Cougar Annie arrived in 1914 to escape the opium dens of Vancouver. Her first husband, Willie, charming but dissolute, had a fatal weakness for them. But when he died in 1936, the island had become an escape of a different kind for Annie. She stayed for another 50 years. Three more husbands came and went. In her time, she was postmistress, shopkeeper, and fur trader. But it was as a nursery gardener that she became renowned. Breeding roses and tulips, dahlias and gladioli. And Annie's garden is still here, looked after by volunteers who struggled to keep the encroaching nature at bay. Arriving from the beach, you pass beneath the rose arch and skirt the unpruned fruit trees to arrive at the house, now leaning so precariously it's too dangerous to enter. The azaleas and the rhododendrons flourish, but long grasses and ferns threaten to overcome the dahlias and the roses. This garden is Annie's ghost. You feel her obstinate determination and fierce independence here. This remote place allowed her to live on her own terms, to avoid convention, pretense, and obligation. This was the freedom that the wilderness of Vancouver Island gave her. We hope you enjoyed our Escapes Truth podcast. Please remember to like and subscribe to help boost us on the charts and ensure that you're the first to hear about our new episodes.